JustLiberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me JustLiberty.org JustLiberty.org Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo. In Houston, officials want to prevent the creation of, quote, robot brothels within the city limits. But having sex with a machine doesn't violate any existing prostitution or sex trafficking laws. Scott, what would be the effect of criminalizing sex with robots? Banning robot sex would be a huge slap in the face to the American public. I mean, we already have to deal with the fact that flying cars did not turn out to be a thing. <laughs> so if, if, we, if we can't have sex with robots, then what's the, really the point of all this high-tech futurism stuff? Anyway? <laughs> That's what we're all aspiring to. <laughs> I, I, I mean, we, we were promised this by the Sci-Fi Channel. Well. <laughs> I mean, getting to have sex with robots was supposed to take all the sting out of them taking all of our jobs. <laughs> So. <laughs> I really <laughs> all I want to do is leave the room with this. <laughs> that's really that's where we're all where no, this we're, is going. we're only going to dig deeper into it. So oh god, suck it up, Buttercup. <laughs> all right, hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the October 2018 episode of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm Scott Henson, policy director at Just Liberty. Here today with our good friend Mandy Marzullo, who's executive director at the Texas Defender Service. How are you doing today, Mandy? I'm good. Coming up, excerpts from a debate between Dallas County District Attorney candidates, racial disparities in marijuana enforcement, a segment we call Forensic Focus, and an interview with an activist seeking ballot access for Texas jail inmates who are eligible to vote. So, Mandy, what are you looking forward to on the podcast today? Forensic Focus. That is always my favorite. I don't know. For for me, it's sex robots. It's, it's <laughs> no. got to be the sex robots. I think that's my least favorite topic ever. So moving on. First up, our top story, as we discussed in the opening, Mayor Sylvester Turner has announced he intends to try to stop a local business from opening in Houston to sell robotic sex dolls. The company's critics have dubbed it a robotic brothel, but it doesn't violate any Texas statutes. So, Scott, is banning this sort of business a good idea? Banning this sort of business is kind of a ridiculous idea. First, there's no problem yet. <laughs> there's not, you know, this was raised to the mayor by a anti-sex trafficking organization. They did an online petition. And, you know, I consider this sort of the outrage industrial complex rearing its, its ugly head. <laughs> I like they, that <laughs> remember that outrage industrial, the outrage complex, industrial complex it really is because there's a reason it doesn't violate any laws it doesn't actually have any victims and you know i think that there's a fear of sex and there's a fear of technology in this country and these sort of combine in this issue area to sort of touch on everybody's phobias i guess that's probably why you want to leave the room when we want to talk about it it's like <laughs> just, oh my gosh really your sex or but hey it's not me it's sylvester turner i didn't put this on the, i didn't put this on the agenda man <laughs> yeah it's all his fault no I, 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 and i'm with you like I'm with you. I don't think that this should be criminalized, right? I don't think it should, like this is not a topic that the criminal justice system deals with well. I mean, we've seen that in in so many other contexts that we criminalize far too many different types of behaviors, I think in our society. I just don't know how to have a productive conversation about this issue. Right. And, and well, I and, think what you just said is is kind of a, a big part of my point about how, where to start the conversation is that we don't really know how to manage it. So the, the example I would give that as a comparison, as an analog, is the drone legislation that the Texas legislature passed. And everyone thought, oh, no, the drones are going to be hovering over our house and peeking through our windows and taking pictures of us having sex in our bedrooms. And we have, we must stop it. And so they passed this legislation to create Class C misdemeanors for anyone who takes photos with their drones without getting someone's permission. Well, drone photography has turned into such an incredibly useful <laughs> thing. It has all of these positive notes. All of the fear-mongering about all the privacy concerns has really not panned out. Very few people are hovering drones next to their neighbor's windows. Most people are, like, taking, you know, long shots for their real estate listing or whatever. And there are just many, many very legitimate uses. Well, in this same sense with the, with the robots, 
I have to wonder if when an alternative to the services of sex trafficking organizations comes up that violates no laws, that harms no victims, that doesn't hurt any human being, and basically if you're violating anyone's rights, it's the equivalent of you know disrespecting your Roomba <laughs> um, or, or whatever, then, then that seems to me like that might solve a few problems. Maybe I'm projecting too much, but... Yeah, I don't know. And the, the problem with this issue is that it's, you know, intertwined with, you know, gender roles and issues of sex and inappropriateness that are so loaded, I think, in yes. our culture right now. And the whole debate is loaded. Yeah, that it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know when we're actually discussing issues that really are dealing with equity between, you know, men and women and when we're talking about something else. And so, it's to me it seems like something that might be appropriate for regulation right or some sort of administrative process or some sort of public dialogue about whether someone wants this in their backyard normally i hate nimby like debates because i think typically it leads to like the oppression of minority groups and particularly low income groups and limitations on services to those groups <laughs> very often yeah no seriously but this might be the rare exception. I just don't know how to fix it. I don't even know how to participate in it. And that's why I... I think really... it's easy to participate. You just buy a doll. <laughs> but... The... <laughs> <laughs> But you know what I mean? But like, how did it like, I, I don't even know. I it just, if someone wants to have sex with a doll, I, I don't even know uh, like what value judgment to assign that. Exactly. Just, but it's all even stranger, the debate, because in Houston, they have no zoning. And so the way that most cities would address this in a regulatory fashion, they don't do that. And if you're not going to zone your strip clubs to be away from the churches and schools, then you're sure as hell not going to zone your your robot your ro doll sales. That's right. And they're, they're calling this a robot brothel, by the way. And that is what its critics are re re referring to as. It's, it's business owners are selling robots. And because they had a uh, try before you buy policy is what got them in the the the, the brothel label. Yeah, you know, I, I said on the blog that robot. Robot sex dolls are probably pretty expensive. You might want to try before you buy. <laughs> there, there, there's a lot of spouses of boat owners who probably wish that they had taken similar precautions before they they made those investments. I, and so, <laughs> I, I just and again, it's just just one of those. I I it's it's. You know, I chose this topic just to make you uncomfortable. Yeah, no, and and you have succeeded. <laughs> Right. Wonderfully. <laughs> In Dallas, the district attorney's race on the November ballot has emerged as one of the highest profile prosecutor races in the country. On October 18th, Just Liberty co-sponsored a debate between the candidates, along with the Dallas area group called Evolve. Both Republican incumbent Faith Johnson and Democratic challenger John Crusoe participated. The candidates spent most of the evening debating who was more committed to reform. Over the course of the debate, four key issues emerged as priorities in the race. Innocence initiatives, reducing mass incarceration, bail reform, and holding police accountable when they shoot unarmed civilians or engage in misconduct. I'll publish the full audio of the event on my blog, Grits for Breakfast, in a couple of days. But in this segment, let's share some highlights of the debate with our listeners. Faith Johnson began her opening remarks by describing her efforts to bolster the Conviction Integrity Unit in her office, which is charged with seeking out and overturning false convictions. I also have expanded the Conviction Integrity Unit. That unit was only one prosecutor, one support staff, one investigator. I have increased that unit. I also now have increased it more because we have a federal, a federal grant. And that unit reports directly to me. I say to, the, I say to my Conviction Integrity Unit, I have a mandate. I want to free the innocent. I don't believe that one person who, has been, who is innocent should spend one second in jail. Judge Crusoe began by decrying mass incarceration. We know that mass incarceration is a terrible problem in America. It's a terrible problem in Texas. And it's a terrible problem in Dallas County, don't we? Can we agree on that? Yes. Can we agree that we want to have our next district attorney who understands 
that mass incarceration is a terrible problem for my community. Yes or no? Yes. Building on that theme, Judge Cruzeau described his record operating a drug court in Dallas County, which is one of the first such specialty courts in the entire state. In 1998, starting at Burt low-level drug offenders, felony cases, people who would otherwise have a criminal record, put them through treatment, dismissed their case, got it expunged. Did a study on it. 68% reduction in rearrest. What precedes an arrest? A crime. So we're talking about reducing crime. Another study done on that, cost-benefit analysis. For every dollar spent, there was $9.34 on avoided criminal justice costs. We didn't stop there. We started looking at the people who went through the system again and again and again, the institutionalized individuals, our cousins, our nieces, our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors. And we started a program for them, similar to the Divert Court program. We put them in treatment and we monitored them. And we watched them closely and we loved them, something that they had lost the ability to do to themselves because they've been locked up so many times. And what we showed that was a 31% reduction in arrests. And we showed a 67% reduction in probation revocations. In response, Faith Johnson described her own efforts to create diversion programs. That's why two of our diversion programs are DA-driven. Our mental health program, which is set, and also our um, homeless diversion program. That's a program that I started just this year. Because when you look at homelessness, 70% of the people in this country were just one paycheck away from being homeless. If you miss that paycheck, you're going to be homeless. And believe it or not, this city, this, the city of, of, of Dallas and the county, we have more homeless people than a lot of counties throughout the state of Texas. So we have to look at mental illness, homelessness, we have to look at drug addiction. addiction. And when you look at what happened years ago, a lot of the diversion program was just looking at the drug addiction. But now we're looking at, we gotta go a little deeper. We gotta look at the root of this. And when you look at the root of something, then you can really come up with an answer and a solution to the problem. So that's why the SET program, a mental health program is so critical because what we're learning is that so many offenses that take place in this county, those defendants have mental illness and and for years and years and years, we've never addressed it. That's why the mental illness diversion program is so critical. That's why our, our, our homeless diversion program is so important. And that's why our AIM program is so important. All three of those programs are DA-driven, and it's for the purpose of making certain that we don't throw people away when we really need to serve them and we really need to help them. And that's what we're doing right now at the Dallas County District Attorney's Office. Judge Cruzeau, however, criticized the incumbent for needlessly jailing homeless people for offenses like criminal trespass. But there's another issue that we need to talk about, and that is why do we even incarcerate the homeless in the first place? Simple criminal trespass, okay, gets people caught up in jail. And the program she's talking about, the first time you do anything wrong in a homeless program, this is from the judge to my ears, okay? You get a talking to. The second time, you go to jail for 10 days. Okay, now you tell me what good does that do to put a homeless person in jail for 10 days? Absolutely nothing. When I'm your district attorney, we're going to take a look at those cases, and if it's simple homelessness, if it's simple criminal trespass, and it doesn't threaten community safety, we're going to put those people merely in services and not even expose them to the possibility of going to jail. When questioned about how the district attorney should handle shootings of unarmed civilians by police officers, Faith Johnson described her decision-making process surrounding the prosecution of Balt Springs police officer Roy Oliver, who shot 15-year-old Jordan Edwards in a fleeing vehicle and was recently convicted of murder. In fact, my, my top administrators, when we tried the Roy Oliver case and we started at the beginning of that case, that was the very first time in a long, long time 
that a police officer was actually arrested. My prosecutors told me, no, we don't do it that way. We wait for it to go to the grand jury, which could take a year or two years. I said, no, we're going to treat that officer just like we treat the regular citizen. And we prosecuted Roy Oliver. We got a guilty verdict. We got 15 years in prison. I know some people would want more, but we were there and we tried it. I was a part of that trial. And the country is rejoicing all over for that conviction. Judge Cruzeau answered the same question by endorsing an independent civilian review board. I support an independent police review board with subpoena power. Okay? Why? Because this community deserves it. We're not just talking about Roy Oliver in that case. We have almost 30 municipalities in this county. I, as a practicing lawyer, have reported misconduct by police officers from many municipalities in this community. And you know what? Nothing ever happens because there is no independent police review board. How about Dallas police officers telling somebody who to pick out on the photo lineup when in fact they're supposed to give the photo lineup to a second officer who's supposed to do it. That was my case. You know what happened to that officer? Even though, and I went through the public integrity unit to file the complaint. Absolutely nothing. He's still there doing the same thing. I had a police officer who hid the tape of the videotape confession from another jurisdiction, not Dallas, but from another jurisdiction, okay? And played as though it didn't exist. When I threatened to subpoena the chief to get down there, the chief got somebody to go find it, and what they did was they didn't mark it, so it went off in an unmarked file as opposed to a marked file. Guess what happened to him? He was not fired, okay? Do we need a, an independent police review board in this community for all of our jurisdictions? You bet. This is bigger than just Roy Oliver in one case. Yes. This is a problem that exists in every municipality. And every municipality should have access to that, whether it's one big police review board or one that's independent for each and every municipality. Either way, I support the concept. Thank you. On questions of mass incarceration, Faith Johnson declared that her commitment to increasing diversity in her office had resulted in fewer prison sentences. First of all, I want to say that I'm totally against mass incarceration. And when you look at how you address it, you really start internally. One of the things I've done is brought diversity to the DA's office. And when you bring diversity and you, you bring folks who are, who are thinking like you and who's committed to making certain that equal justice is done to everybody, for everybody, that's going to impact the consequences and the results of what's going to happen in those courts. When you look at what we've done from 2017, from 2016, we have reduced the number of people going to prison. From 2018 to 2017, we're almost doubling number of people who are going to prison. These are the stats. So how do you do that? Why is that happening? It's happening because of the people we're hiring, the training we're doing, and the commitment to making certain that there's equal justice and the right thing is done. And then we're also doing it by our diversion program. We're looking at alternatives as opposed to incarcerating people. And the reason why we have those, that uh, alternative is because of our commitment to all of the different diversion programs that we have and the programs that we've added. So mass incarceration, you look at the people you hire, the people you train, you look at the alternatives that you're offering defendants, and you look at the fact that when you have a methodology, you have a mission, you've got a commitment to making certain that justice is equal for everybody. And then you won't have, you're going to constantly reduce the number of people going to prison and make certain that only the right people go there are dangerous people. So we don't want to say we don't want anybody to go to prison. We want to make certain that we put the right people in prison, and those are our most dangerous people, is who we want to go to prison. Judge Cruzeau responded by citing James Foreman's new book, Locking Up Our Own, to say diversity in and of itself was no substitute for policymaking. 
He cited his own participation in Texas 2007 probation reforms to demonstrate his own commitment to reduced incarceration. But the debate really heated up when the two discussed the ongoing bail reform lawsuit facing the county. Here's how Cruzeau framed the question. We have a broken bail bond system. We have a lawsuit that was filed here, first in Harris County, and then up in Dallas County in regards to that. And the district attorney played a role in how that case went. Okay, let me read something to you. This is taken off of the federal website. This is, in fact, the answer that your district attorney gave to the bail bond lawsuit. I'm going to read the title of it, and it says, Dallas County's Motion to Dismiss and Brief in Support. And I'm not going to go through all the 28 pages of the other stuff, but I'm just going to get to the end of it. The last sentence, paragraph, says, Wherefore, premises considered Dallas County praise this court will grant this motion and dismiss plaintiff's claims against this with prejudice. What does that mean? Don't come back, go away, see you later. And that plaintiffs take nothing from it by this suit, that prospective injunctive release against it be denied in all respects, that it recover it costs and any other relief to which it might be unjustly entitled. Might be justly entitled. Signed, Faith Johnson, District Attorney, Dallas County, Texas. Okay, so... What would I have done had I been your district attorney at that time? I would have agreed that the current system is unconstitutional and illegal and that the best way to determine if somebody is going to be a risk to not show up is to do a risk assessment, which the United States is in the process of doing. We're not quite done. Bail reform is a relatively new concept around the United States. And there's research going on to develop tools and instruments, and Houston is now doing that. We now have a court order. That was ignored, by the way, by the judge. And the judge granted injunctive relief against Dallas County and gave Dallas County a plan. But I would not have done that. Okay? I'm just telling you right now. Keeping somebody in jail who can show up to court merely because they don't have money is unconstitutional and it is immoral. Faith Johnson responded to say she was only representing what the county's judges wanted, not her own positions. If you notice, this lawsuit that my opponent just made a reference to is styling Shannon Davis versus Dallas County. This is a lawsuit against Dallas County and the judges. One thing people don't know is that the Dallas County District Attorney's Office we are criminal, we, I'm a criminal district attorney. So I handle all the criminal cases and the civil cases. Meaning that when the commissioner's court is sued, we have to represent them. And guess what? We have to listen to our client in terms of how the case is ultimately going to be decided. But Judge Cruzeau would have none of it. He declared he would have admitted the system was unconstitutional and not have filed a motion to dismiss the suit. Anybody in here a lawyer? You're a lawyer? Okay. Let me tell you about the rules that govern lawyers. Your client can't tell you to do something that's unconstitutional or illegal. Okay? You can throw it back on your client all you want. The bail bond system was unconstitutional and is unconstitutional and is illegal and immoral. And you can blame it on the commissioners all you want. But when you sign your name to a piece of paper, that's your name, not their name. Okay? And signing it on behalf of each and every one of them to dismiss the case. Hey, it's right there. You can come up with who said what and who did what. But if the judge had followed this, guess what? We'd still be in the status quo with the same old thing going on. As a lawyer, hear me again, please. Your client cannot order you to do something that is unconstitutional or illegal. You have to exercise your independent judgment. Everybody knows that. That's not, if you're not a lawyer, you know that to be true. 
right? I'm telling you right now, this would not have been the answer on behalf of the judges on Dallas County or anything, any other entity had I been the district attorney. Okay? And all this filing paperwork and this, that, and the other, this piece of paper never would have existed. And we would have gotten ahead of this instead of having to fight it and get and take as long as we did to get to the point where we are had I been your district attorney. And I promise you, we're going to get bail reform and we're going to do it the right way when I'm your district attorney. Toward the end of the event, questioners pivoted back to police shootings and their impact on community trust. So community trust, between 2005 and April 2017, 80 officers have been arrested on murder or manslaughter charges for on-duty shootings. During that 12-year span, 35% were convicted, while the rest were pending or not convicted, according to the work by Philip Stinson, an associate professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. How will you work to rebuild the trust of the community back into the judicial system when so often officers are not even indicted, let alone found guilty of wrongful death? Judge Cruzeau took the opportunity to discuss the recent shooting of Botham Jean by Dallas police officer Amber Geiger in an instant which drew national headlines. Um, so, well, one of the things of building trust we've already brought up is a citizen's review board to review the actions of police. The other thing is, thank God for cell phones and security cameras, isn't it? No? How about that? Because a lot of that stuff we're talking about, those people who were charged wouldn't have been charged with anything. Do you remember the police officer who shot the man in the back as he was running away and they took out a gun and stuck it down there next to him? Huh? Thank God somebody had a cell phone. So what we need to do is what, what we should do, and that is, number one, don't treat any police officer any differently. Okay? If both of them had walked into her apartment, okay, and same situation, I guarantee you he wouldn't have walked away. He would have been put in cuffs and taken where? To the police station. A camera would have been put on him. He would have been read his rights. Okay, he wouldn't have turned himself into Kaufman County. Yes. Okay, so when we talk about how we treat, and that was a police issue. The police made that decision to do that. Okay, but I've made it perfectly clear by posting and trying to explain to the community what this case is about. And I don't know how it's going to end up. It has to go to the grand jury, and, it'll, and I trust that it will be fairly done. Okay, but it's not a manslaughter case, and I've gone through that. If you go to my Facebook page, you can read it. It more fits murder than it does manslaughter by a large amount, okay? Not even close. So when we talk about police accountability, there's technology that's helping us find out and catch, and then we've got to be vigorously committed to prosecuting those cases to the fullest extent of the law when we can prove them beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's the only way that we're going to get to this. Unfortunately, we're finding out day by day and month by month that there are some, not many, thank God, but some police officers who just won't follow the law. One thing we haven't talked about recently that we did 30 years ago is alternative uses of force instead of shooting somebody. And we need to retrain our officers, I think, and have a real community commitment to doing that so that the gun is not the first option to deal with somebody. Faith Johnson answered the question by revisiting her office's prosecution of the Roy Oliver case. We did something that has not happened in 43 years when we tried the Roy Oliver case. And I took that case, and when you look at the position that the Sheriff's Department was taking, and even my own staff said to me, we don't do it that way. What they were accustomed to, Ms. Ms. Davis, Thank you for being here, by the way. I appreciate you, uh, Elizabeth Fazell's uh, mom. Uh, what they were accustomed to is always taking the case to the grand jury, never arresting an officer, allowing that officer to walk on the street. While if Billy Joe had done the same thing, he would have been arrested right away, in jail, pending trial. And I took the position, if you do it to Billy Joe, you got to do it to Raleigh. And I talked to the sheriff's department. He was finally arrested. We prosecuted him. Finally, he was found guilty. We got a 15-year sentence. People all over the world, not just the state of Texas and County, all over the world were rejoicing. You know why? Because it didn't happen in California. 
They couldn't get a conviction in New York. They couldn't get one in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We got it in Texas. Because of my commitment is that I will not tolerate bad cops. Now, I support our police. I love our police. It's the bad ones that I won't tolerate. And that's how we are going to be able to get trust in our, in our community back into law enforcement. Because they got to know the same thing. If I do that, then you'll do the same thing to the guy who wears the blue uniform that you do to the guy that doesn't wear it. And that's how we're going to restore trust in this whole community and our whole system. And that's what I'm doing. Not based on what I promise you. This is what I've done. And one thing you all don't know, we have prosecuted more police officers than any county in my tenure since 2017 than any county in the United States. It's surely remarkable that two district attorney candidates in Texas' second largest city spent most of their hour and a half debate competing over who would be the most likely to deliver reform. That's a stark shift in the terms of debate in Texas prosecutor elections from just a couple of decades ago and a very welcome change. In a couple of days, I'll publish the full debate between Faith Johnson and John Crusoe on my blog, Grits for Breakfast. So if you want to hear more from these two candidates, look for that soon. The incarceration train keeps rolling, rolling down the line. It's filled with pain and sorrow, but the driver is doing just fine. Just fine. And the passengers in cargo, when they get to the end of the line, gonna learn this train window where Lord and the ticket price show is high. Stop the train. 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 I'm getting off. Bail reform has been a hot topic for the last several years in Texas, but litigation results in Houston and Dallas and a ruling by the Fifth Circuit limiting the Harris County order have complicated the question of exactly what is required for Texas county bail schemes to be deemed constitutional. Recently, Scott sat down with Suzanne Pringle, legal director at the Texas Fair Defense Project, for a from-the-front-lines explanation of where this issue is at in Texas courts and the implications for bail reform in 2019. Litigation over bail reform and pretrial detention in Texas of late has had the feel of one of those shell games favored by street hustlers, in which you try to identify which of three cups a ball is under. It's hard to know where to watch and nearly impossible to keep one's eye on the target. That's especially true in Harris County, where the county has implemented certain reforms. While ignoring others, the Fifth Circuit has issued two conflicting rulings, and the full federal appellate court has yet to finally rule. I asked Suzanne Pringle to explain the status of Harris County bail litigation and describe for us when they might reach some conclusion. Judge Rosenthal issued the injunction, which included release after 24 hours. If you um, have been determined uh, able to be released on money bond, but you can't afford it, release on, uh, within 24 hours. If you haven't had a hearing yet, um, required individualized bail determinations, etc. The Fifth Circuit on appeal of that particular injunction said, generally, this is okay. 48 hours is more appropriate than 24. And I want you to go back to the drawing board on a couple of other things. So Judge Rosenthal issued a new injunction that was similar to her original injunction, but did include a 48-hour instead of a 24-hour window. And on what's called on an emergency motion to stay, okay, which is um, not a full appeal of the injunction, but an emergency motion to stay, a three-member panel of the Fifth Circuit said, wait a minute. We're going to stay, which means keep from going into effect, mm -hmm. the provisions of the injunction that apply to the first 48 hours. So that three-person panel on the basis of an emergency motion to stay said, for now, everything that required release if you haven't been seen within 48 hours or release if you've been determined that you could be released on a certain amount of money, but it's been determined that you can't afford it. Those two, which were the two biggest provisions in terms of getting people out mm -hmm. in Harris County, that three-person panel said, we are going to stay those provisions of the injunction pending an appeal on the injunction. So at this point, we are waiting for the Fifth Circuit to actually rule on the appeal of those three provisions. They've been stayed. They're not in place for now, but they haven't actually been ruled on in a way that's appealable. Does that make sense? Well, no wonder I was confused. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, that, <laughs> that Lots is... Lots of legal complications. But the, right. I mean, what it is, it is, um, it is bad 
in that, it means that there were, you know, for the year after the, um, the injunction that Judge Rosenthal originally ordered, people were getting released in numbers like 125 to 150 a day mm-hmm. who had been determined that they could be released on money bail but couldn't afford it. Those folks were getting released. And folks that weren't getting seen in the allotted period of time, which was 24 hours at the time, those folks were getting released. So none of those folks are getting released anymore. So wow. that is bad from the perspective of bail advocates who thought that folks should be released if they couldn't afford bail but were determined for release. Now. Harris County did make some internal changes in response to all this. Are, are none of those still causing at least some of those releases to so happen? Some, some folks are, I think the, the number of personal bonds being issued has increased in Harris County. People are getting lawyers at their hearing. They're getting public defenders. And deal. so, and that's a big deal. And that is actually catching on. I mean, part of what we're getting at later in this conversation is what's happening across the state, but that is, you know, starting to catch on around the state. And I think you're going to see more and more counties adopting that model of giving people appointed counsel or public defenders at that initial hearing. And that re- that leads to lower bond amounts, which people are more likely to be able to make. And that leads to more personal bonds because there is somebody at that hearing who can advocate for that. So there are certainly more people being released than there were before the original injunction went into place. But there are fewer people being released now than there were under the initial injunction. Gotcha. I do want to go back to the, you know, because I said this is bad and there are bad things about it. But I think it is important to note that, you know, we are still waiting for the Fifth Circuit to rule on the question in a final way. This is an emergency motion to stay. I realize that's sort of an insider sounding term, but it is not the final decision of the Fifth Circuit on this issue. Gotcha. So even though it is bad right now, we can't take it as the last word because it's not. And hopefully we'll have the briefing in the Fifth Circuit is all coming out in the next month or so. And then we'll get it. Um, we'll get an argument date and hopefully we'll have more of a sense in the coming months of what the Fifth Circuit is actually going to say wow. about those provisions of the injunction. And well, hopefully it'll be different. That actually clarifies a lot. Thank you so much. I, I have to say I had been just almost overwhelmed with, with the complexity of, of the, of the status of what all this meant. Yeah. And speaking of which, and, and actually this follows directly along with your comments there about getting lawyers at hearings that to me, that takes us to Dallas. Yes. And Dallas also has now had, is it an injunction? Yes, a preliminary injunction. All right. Tell us the status of what's going on in Dallas. And I know the county has ponied up for 24 new employees to start to have lawyers at the bail hearings. Give, give us give us an update there and explain to me how this fits in because they're in the Fifth Circuit, too, with everything mm-hmm. else that's yeah. going on. Well, so the um, there are a couple of ways that Dallas County is different than Harris County. One is that felonies are included, not just misdemeanors. So the actual injunction that has been issued applies to a much larger number of people in Dallas than it did in Harris County because felonies are included. It is also different in that the injunction that um, Judge Godby issued in Dallas does not apply to that first 48-hour period of time. It much more closely resembles what the Fifth Circuit suggested would be an injunction that they would endorse, which means it requires individualized bail determinations. It requires a consideration of ability to pay. It requires a consideration of a personal bond or a personal recognizance release. It requires um, notice to defendants about what's going to be at issue at that hearing. But it does not require any of the release pieces that we talked about that Judge Rosenthal's original injunction um, required. So there are more people that are getting those individualized bail hearings that will be getting those individualized bail hearings. The injunction has actually not gone into play yet. It was delayed for 30 days upon Judge Gabby's ruling, and it may be delayed longer depending upon how long it takes to get things into place. Um, but it will be applying to a much broader number of people. Now, Dallas County has said publicly, and the commissioner's court has voted publicly that they are going to hire, as you said, like up to 24 new employees, that they're going to, they have a public defender's office there, which like Harris County makes them in a position to more quickly, like right. more easily put in place lawyers There's a structure at bail hearings. It. Exactly. There's already a structure. So they're in the process of hiring those employees. And I understand that they're trying to get them in play as quickly as they can. That it might take a little bit, it might take a couple of months, but that they are committed as a county to putting those positions in place. And then the other piece of the case that is different than Harris County is that there was also a claim about open access to magistration hearings where the plaintiffs were actually um, 
TOP and Faith in Texas, which are um, organizing groups of um, folks who are often impacted by the criminal justice system. And so another piece of what's happening in Dallas County is that they're making an effort to at least make those magistrations um, accessible by video, if not in person. Gotcha. I spoke to a reporter who, who after much effort, finally got in to, to see some of those. And she said it was done in almost a broom closet type room, such a small setting that um, it was almost like it was intentional. No, it would just be impossible to have someone there. I think that's true in a lot of counties, especially because they typically placed, uh, take place in the jail. For example, in Travis County, they happen in a similarly small broom closet space, and they would rather people not be there. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. So... So we've got litigation in Harris County. We've got litigation in Dallas County. And and there's actually, there's also a case in Galveston, in Galveston. County that is pending that we are not okay. on. I'm not a lawyer on that, so I can't speak as explicitly about that. Um, and I believe that they are still in the, um, I don't think they have an injunction in place yet okay. in Galveston County. So, and, but then at the same time, we see other, we see some counties trying to do this in, in other ways. Corpus Christi created its own risk assessment yep. instead of using the state's risk assessment. Is this a moment where we where it would be beneficial for the legislature to step in and create some basic standardized statewide rules? Because it strikes me, it seems like that we're gonna either going to have lawsuits just county by county or counties are just going to do whatever they think of themselves and then we sue and see what happens. And Or you could just have a new structure that says, no, everyone has to have individualized bail hearings. Everyone has to use a risk assessment. Are we at a point yet where we can tell what the legislature should do, or is it all still too unformed and, and uncertain? I, mean, I think that we, there are a few things that we know that the legislature could do, and I think counties would appreciate the guidance. There are certainly lots of counties that are trying to do the right thing and aren't sure exactly what that is and could use some systemic guidance. Mm -hmm. um, so the legislature could make clear that everybody is supposed to get an individualized bail hearing and that that bail hearing is supposed to take into account ability to pay and that that ability to pay should be a key um, point in decision-making about what bond they're going to set for folks. Um, the legislature could require uh, a validated risk assessment tool be used. And if the legislature is going to do that, I think they also want to dictate that any sort of risk assessment tool is a tool for the judge to figure out what conditions this person could need in order to come back to court and in order to keep the community safe. And I think the the danger of the risk assessment tool is that there are some counties that want to use it as a uh, release or not release decision. And all the experts say that if you're going to use a risk assessment tool and you make sure it's validated and it doesn't have an impact, you know, it's not racist or classist, that once you're using that tool, you're using it to decide, what can I do to support this person to make sure they get back in court? Is it a text reminder? Is it a bus pass? Is it that they need an electronic monitoring? Is it that they need some other sort of check-in? Um, what do they need to be um, most likely to come back into court? As opposed to using that risk assessment as a we're keeping you, we're not keeping you, um, decision-making tool. The legislature could absolutely mandate the use of a validated risk assessment tool along with the presumption of release and the use of the risk assessment tool to determine the best possible conditions upon release. The legislature could absolutely mandate and should mandate that um, there's a presumption of release on personal bond and with the least restrictive conditions. Those are all things that the legislature could do right now and would require, would give counties a lot of guidance and what they could be doing right now. Stop the train, I'm getting old. Next up, a segment we call Suspicious Mysteries, in which we explore questions to which there are no definitive answers. This time, let's delve into the question of racial disparities in the justice system. In Harris County, black folks are arrested for DWI at far lower rates than their proportion of the population. 14% of DWI arrests in Harris County are of African Americans who make up 19% of the county population. But black folks account for a massive proportion of marijuana arrests. At Houston PD in particular, nearly 60% of people arrested for pot were black, compared to just 25% of the city's population. So, Mandy, what explains the big racial disparity in marijuana arrest, but none for DWI? <laughs> and, um, 
do you also want to like in a sorry i'm laughing because this is such a big question and that there really just is no answer to it but i I think the the big question that leaps out at me is what is the pretext that led to these arrests you know was there a services that led to an eventual arrest for this second party like you know an offense when it comes to marijuana use or what what was the if there was a stop what was the reason for it these two crimes deal with very different types of enforcement and there can be regional disparities there 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 could be issues with individual officer judgment but it's very hard to tell just at the macro letter level what's happening without more detail well i i don't know i think I think we can make some reasonable inferences. I think that when you talk about how do people get to these these cases, I think that's really the issue that probably explains it. I think most DWI cases are probably based on much more solid probable cause than a lot of the pot cases. So, for example, most DWI cases are are because someone a cop sees someone swerving in the lanes, or they've pulled someone over for another traffic violation and they smell alcohol on their breath. Um, I think that the array of circumstances under which people are arrested for marijuana is just much, much more broad. It's more just the police happen to be in your business and run across pot. I think you're probably right. I just, you know, it. I just hesitate because this is such a loaded topic that I think from our perspective, we need to have a lot of information before we're drawing inferences because it's it's really hard to tell what's happening. And Well, that's fair. But I do also think that the, the, the level of disparity is massive. And, you know, you hear people say all the time, the criminal justice system is racist. It's racist. Well, the fact is that when you really dig into the numbers, pockets of it are racist. There's places where all of a sudden you hit this part of the system and there's a massive racial disparity at this turning point. So, for example, who gets who who stays in jail and who gets bailed out? You know, they're they're so and so this marijuana enforcement piece, I think, looks to me like one of these areas in the justice system where all of a sudden, boom, we have a massive disparity. Greg Abbott had suggested reducing penalties for uh, marijuana enforcement. And when he made that pitch, his pitch was, if we reduce everything to a class C, we're going to save money on jail costs and we're not going to have to pay for everyone's lawyers if they're indigent. And we're going to save all this police officer time so they'll stay on the street to be able to enforce other things. But you can also look at that policy as almost explicitly just a racial justice question. I mean, if you're looking in the system and trying to identify where are the biggest disparities and where can we reduce enforcement to to make it less disparate, this is one of those big areas where, to me, you can say, hey, nobody really thinks the marijuana offenders are that big a threat. You know, we can reduce a big amount of disparity in one chunk just by By, reducing those penalties or, or in other states they've legalized. There are a lot of different decisions that are made, you know, on the part of the arresting officer that on part of the prosecutor, defense attorney, and how much time they spend on the case, right. and the judge. Legal scholars have referred to this as cascading racism. And I, I think it's true that they all compile to very different outcomes in a case. And so I find a, it's very hard to point to one pocket, mm-hmm. but I think we definitely can all identify, you know, some of these low-level possession drug offenses as being not worth our time and expense in prosecuting. It just, it does more harm than good. Next is segment we call Forensic Focus, homing in on problems with flawed forensics used in Texas courts. The Houston Chronicle recently published a feature touting the successes of ATF agents using a ballistic database called the National Integrated Ballistics Information Network to solve crimes. But on your blog, Grits for Breakfast, you criticize the paper for overstating the effectiveness of ballistics matching, calling on journalists to avoid terms like match or claiming that ballistic markings are unique. Why is this a concern? Well, 
this is one of those issues that goes back to the National Academy of Sciences report from 2009 that you and I have now discussed several times. And this was a landmark publication by the most preeminent scientific organization in, in the United States, analyzing for the very first time all of the areas of so-called forensic science that have been used in many cases for more than 100 years, but had never been validated by science and really in many cases had no scientific basis. And so some of the, the, the forensics that have the most uh, problems, where there are the most serious uh, uh, shortcomings, are comparison-based forensics. And mm. ballistics is one of those. So these are things like everything from um, uh, ballistics and tool marks to fingerprints to tire tracks to... Um, anything that you're comparing one to one, hair and fiber before hair before they did DNA, bite marks, all oh. of these comparison-based forensics, where someone is basically looking at it through a microscope and mm. saying, "Okay, these look similar." <laughs> yeah, but it's not a it's not actually a scientific finding. And uh, the Chronicle used these terms like match and. Uh, uh, Unique. And, and, and yes, and that th this was unique information. And we absolutely cannot say those things. So there's no scientific basis for that at all. The National Academy of Sciences report, and we're going to the glasses here for the small print, declared that examiners who are making these calls are making a, quote, subjective decision based on unarticulated standards and no statistical information about error rates. <laughs> so it's not a computer that's matching these things like it might be on a CSI TV show. It's some person looking at them and saying, these look similar based on what standards there are no standards. Literally, it's just a guy or a gal saying these look similar. How similar to what degree of certainty? What's the error rate? We do not know. No one knows. So, so when some, the cops say, oh, we got a match and we made an arrest, there's less certainty there than perhaps they're portraying. Now, is it possible or even likely that they got the right person? Certainly. But we, we have to, to leave some space for the uncertainty yeah. of the scientific method or the lack of one. Yeah, no, I think you're right. There have been a number of studies out there that have talked about how jurors weigh the evidence that are in front of them and that having someone in a lab coat come in and saying, you know, these two things are the same and I've looked at it, you know, is pretty powerful information. But really at the end of the day, it's a subjective assessment. Well, especially when you're referring to it as science. It's the lab <laughs> coat, right? And it's the forensic science that we're from the crime lab. Yeah. And we're 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 doing this, you know, with a scientific basis. And it's not really that way at all. Yeah. on these comparison-based forensics. Next, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals will consider the case of Rigoberto Avila, an El Paso man convicted of murdering an infant based on what courts now acknowledge was, quote, false and misleading scientific evidence, end quote. Mr. Avila is on death row and has already faced four serious execution dates. But if this scientific testimony was wrong, it bolsters his innocence claims, which he has stuck to from the beginning. Mandy, what do people need to know about this case? You know, there are a few things, but I think that the big thing is just how much error there can be in the criminal justice system and how hard it is to correct it. Oh, and, and the point and the importance of judicial, meaningful judicial review. So Mr. Alver, sorry, Mr. Avila um, has been on the row for 17 years. He had four very serious execution dates. He came very close to being executed. But the new evidence is really showing that there was no crime. This was, you know, a tragedy without a villain. Yeah, false and misleading scientific evidence is about as strong as you could get from a judge criticizing forensics. <laughs> I know, exactly. So, you know, the, the, this just shows that we need to have a lot of skepticism about our criminal justice system. And on top of that, though, this is a case where this the trial court, when confronted with a meaningful application, 
wrote and analyzed the evidence in, independently and wrote their own finding fa- findings of fact and conclusions of law. And that type of judicial scrutiny is key to correcting problems in the system. Didn't just rely on what the prosecutor or the defense attorneys gave them, but the judge actually went through and made her own judgments and 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 called her own shots and wrote her own prose. That that's unbelievably rare in these cases, and it shouldn't be, but it is. Yeah, no, it's 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 awful, but you know, thank God that it happened. Right, and it's it's sad that we have to uh, we can only seemingly get at these bad forensic uh, issues when some judge or some prosecutor somewhere goes way above and beyond. It doesn't happen through just the the typical run-of-the-mill functioning of the justice system. Somebody has to do something really extraordinary for some of these forensic cases to really make. Yeah, definitely. Moving on, election season is upon us, and voters everywhere are amping up for what may be one of the highest turnout midterms ever. But thousands of inmates incarcerated in county jails are technically eligible to vote. They are legally innocent until proven guilty, after all. And most people incarcerated in county jails are there pretrial. But sheriffs who run the jails frequently throw up barriers to allowing that to happen. Scott sat down with Austin activist Hope Doty, who's been working to secure voting access for eligible voters in Travis County's jail. Let's hear what she has to say. I'm here today with Hope Doty, who has spent most of 2018 trying to get ballot access for Travis County jail inmates. Hope, thank you for talking with me today. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. Appreciate it. All right. So this start this process started earlier in the year. It's been going on quite a while. And obviously, with the election coming up, you've just about reached the denouement of your your efforts. So so tell me about your 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 story, your journey here. Tell me why you started to try and get ballots into the jail and what that was like. All right. Well, so first of all, um, we started about March of this year, and um, I was working with the Austin Justice Coalition, uh, who shamelessly stole the idea from the Houston Justice Coalition, uh, who had started uh, registering folks at their jail. And we worked with the Travis County Sheriff's Office and the Travis County Clerk uh, to propose getting some voter registration volunteers into the jail. Uh, So we were able to get folks vetted over their um, background check process, which is a few weeks. And then we got uh, quite a number of folks volunteered to, and they had to, of course, become VDRs, volunteer deputy registrars, uh, through the Travis County uh, Tax Office. And so we got a number of volunteers. We did our first uh, voter registration at the jail in March, and we've done it every between five and six weeks. And so far, well, by the end of the session, when the the deadline hit in uh, early October, we had registered over 400 folks from the Travis County Jail. So we're pretty proud of that. So the jail population is pretty transient for a voter registration drive. At first, you've got folks who are often just there for a very short period of time pre-trial. Um, you have some that are staying longer, and I imagine those are the folks who you're more dealing with when you're going in over time leading up to an election. I mean, maybe perhaps I'm wrong, but uh, we were also discussing before we, we started how, especially in the state capital in Austin, there can be folks from all over the state who might be in the jail. So so what's that population like? And of course, you can't vote if you have a, a felony and are still on, on parole or, yeah. or on paper in some way. So uh, talk to me about the population that you were registering and, and 400 compared to, say, 2,500 people in the jail may not sound like a lot, but but the subset that may be eligible, it's probably a much bigger number, right? Yeah, so... <clears throat> What it turns out to be, um, I've got my statistics correct here, Uh, approximately 50 to 65% of the jail population at any given time are eligible to register to vote. Okay. Uh, And yeah, we do have a lot of folks that sit there waiting for trial. We have folks on misdemeanor charges. And of course, uh, some folks that are uh, awaiting a felony charge or a felony uh, trial. 
Uh, but anybody who has not been convicted of a felony yet, in other words, or if they've been convicted of a felony and they are what is considered off paper, yeah, which parole or probation pro- is ended. Pro- parole, probation, any punishment and incarceration. Once that's completed, even if they're sitting in jail on a misdemeanor, as long as that felony conviction is off paper, they are eligible to register and vote. Uh, so that first step was a lot of education for both the uh, the folks who work in the jail and also for the volunteers. And then the biggest piece is making sure that the inmates understand that. All right. Well, what advice would you give to someone in another county who wanted to try and, and, and do this there? Oh, boy, I would say go for it. You know, the worst thing, I think my philosophy with all this whole process has been the only thing they can, the worst thing they can tell me is no. Um, so start there. Start with your with uh, your county clerk. Start it's probably with happened county, a few times, though. Just a few. <laughs> <laughs> just a few. Um, but I'm a kind of a pit bull, so what are you going to do? Um, but, yeah, so I would say start with your sheriff, especially if you have a sheriff that seems to be willing to work with you. That's the best place to start. Um, also, your county clerk might be a good advocate to help you out as well. Um, and then start, I believe what we started with at Travis County Jail was we had a group of folks who had already were already vetted through the jail doing the volunteer work that the, at what we call the programs unit, people who were doing different various programs. Uh, so we started there, put a note out to those folks, and then we got another batch of folks from the Austin Justice Coalition uh, who wanted to also participate, and they had to go through the two to three week background check process for the for the sheriff's office. And they also had to become volunteer deputy registrars through their county clerk's office. So that was a two step process. Mm -hmm. But it's not painful. It's not hard. It's a little time consuming initially to get the thing up and running and rolling. Um, And then I would recommend somebody who's considering doing it, maybe do a walkthrough with the sheriff or the sheriff's staff through the jail. So you kind of have a really good idea of the layout and how the process might work. Mm -hmm. Because we did a lot of trial and error at the beginning. Hey, let's try it this way. Well, that was a miserable idea. Let's try something else. It's all because of how it's physically laid out. (laughs) It's absolutely how it's physically laid out. Uh, And it's also the size of your county, frankly. Uh, Harris County uh, has over 10,000. Oh, it's a small city. Yeah, totally. Yes. Seven stories, two buildings, 10,000 people. uh, And and another 900 are 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 incarcerated in Louisiana. They can't even fit them all in those buildings. Yeah, that's that's really sad. Uh, But so they had a different scenario. So they, again, working from an even larger county, they were able to get a larger number of volunteers as it happens. Mm -hmm. And the way their jail physically was structured – they were able to take all of the volunteers into the units themselves and work within the units, unit by unit. So it was a completely different setup than you see at the Travis County Jail. Wow. Because the Travis County Jail, we had a two-hour window on any given day that we were registering voters because they have a uh recreational period i believe so they are they are out of their cells they're in their general population unit uh and they're free to move about so we were able to go in uh for only a two-hour window on whatever day we were registering them or uh as happened on the ballot by mail application day so we were restricted by a very small window of time so you can only do so many people in that small amount of time in Houston, they were able to do more? Yeah, Houston, they were able uh, – I understand uh, from talking to the Houston Justice Coalition, their setup uh, enabled them to send a huge number of volunteers into one very large unit one time. So they didn't have the the transition that we had to go mm-hmm. pod by pod by pod. They would just send a whole bunch of people in one unit and register a bunch of people and then move on to the next Gotcha. Basically. So completely different physical setup and capability of doing that. Now it's time for our rapid fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I am ready. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced that he'll hold a whip count for the First Step Act in federal sentencing reform after the election and hold a vote if there are 60 supporters. 
Soon after that, President Trump announced his support, threatening to overrule his Attorney General Jeff Sessions if the latter man didn't like the law. Scott, will this breed new life into federal justice reform? It really is great news, and uh, this is Charles Grassley's bill that's getting tacked onto the First Step Act to actually do sentencing reform, and I suppose there's a lens you could look at this through where, where this is payback for him expediting the Kavanaugh nomination, for better or worse, but this is an important step, and we couldn't get sentencing reform like this through you know, Congresses under Obama. If it can happen in a Republican Congress more power to him. Well, I mean, it's also just extraordinary that you know, criminal justice reform is something that means so much to or an elected high-ranking Republican that they're going to spend some of their chips on it. Right. The, the terms of debate on criminal justice reform have really turned nationally. There are more opportunities to do more reform bills at all levels than at any other time. And and I really hope that everyone jumps on this bandwagon and takes this opportunity. They don't come around very often. I hope so, too. After an inmate had spit on him, a prison guard defied direct orders to take the man handcuffed to an empty bathroom alone and beat him mercilessly. The inmate died of his injuries two weeks later. Initial reports had not included that detail that he was handcuffed, Mandy, what can the state do to present to prevent these sorts of episodes? Well, I will say that this is a pretty extraordinary case. I mean, this, it's 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 hard to think how it isn't an intentional murder if someone is handcuffed and beaten to death when they're in state custody. So there's a the idea that this is could happen means that there's a lot to be done. But one of the big ones is just to have independent oversight of TVCJ to make sure that someone else is taking a look at it and that there's a culture that prioritizes inmate safety. Right. When they when they uh, announced the case and didn't initially say that the fellow had been handcuffed when he was beaten to death, that is a pretty big oversight. <laughs> independent oversight might mean that somebody's... You know, looking at those details a little more. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Finally, in a debate with Lupe Valdez, Governor Greg Abbott endorsed reducing penalties for possession of less than two ounces of marijuana from a Class B to a Class C misdemeanor, effectively making the same, making it the same as a traffic ticket. Is this the right move? It's a great move. It'll it'll eliminate more than sixty thousand arrests a year, which would be an amazing thing. The Republican Party platform actually endorsed making marijuana, uh, low-level marijuana possession, a civil penalty and making it uh, a fine of $250 and a non-criminal offense. And the reason to do that instead of the, the B to a C is that there are federal collateral consequences. For example, mm-hmm. you can't get student loans if you have a marijuana conviction, even a low-level Class B. And so uh, to eliminate those, um, that's why the Republican Party platform had suggested the, the civil penalty. But a Class B to a Class C would still eliminate tens of thousands of, of arrests and would be a really big deal. Either of those policies would be a very welcome improvement. All right. All right. We're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. We'll be back next month with another episode of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast. Until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen.